welcome to Doing the Work, the frontline stories of social change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. In this episode, I talk with Day Pope, Director of Civic Engagement at Take, trans advocates, knowledgeable, empowering, located in Birmingham, Alabama, and Pennsylvania. Take was founded by Darnisha Duncan Boyd as a peer support group for trans women of color and has expanded to provide services, advocacy, and organizing. We talk about the current anti-trans legislation sweeping the country and how transphobia is not new, but this current climate is increasingly politically hostile as the right uses trans folks as scapegoats and a rallying point for their base. Day talks about the lack of healthcare access for transgender people and the multitude of interconnected issues that are barriers to healthcare, rooted in racism, classism, cisgenderism, white, wealthy, hetero, cisgender patriarchal normativity. Day explains how anti-trans legislation is creating multiple issues for trans youth, including targeted harassment, potentially being outed to their parents, and being denied medical care, while health care providers and parents and guardians who support trans youth are being threatened with felonies. Day explains how puberty blockers work and counters misinformation about hormone therapy and surgery. We also talk about legislation against trans athletes. Day talks about Take's civic engagement work, specifically on voting rights for trans folks, especially trans folks of color, and the multiple ways voter suppression occurs. Day emphasizes the strength and love of the Take community and how they are organizing to provide basic needs, yet go beyond by developing leaders who are creating change on multiple levels. Day speaks to her hope among youth and also shares what her experience was like when she was younger. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Before we get into the interview, I want to let you all know about our episode sponsor, the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work. First off, I want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. UH has a phenomenal social work program that offers face-to-face master's and doctorate degrees, as well as an online and hybrid MSW. They offer one of the country's only political social work programs, and an abolitionist-focused learning opportunity. Located in the heart of Houston, the program is guided by their bold vision to achieve social, racial, economic, and political justice, local to global. In the classroom and through research, they are committed to challenging systems and reimagining ways to achieve justice and liberation. Go to www.uh.edu forward slash social work to learn more. And now... The interview. Hey, Day, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm super excited that we connected. Want to give props to the Trans Law Center for connecting us. And, you know, just to kind of start out, if you could share with us about what you currently do. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I work with an organization called Take Trans Advocates Knowledgeably Empowering. That's based in Birmingham and was started by and led by trans women of color. And at Take, we have now expanded to also do some work in Pennsylvania. 
We do direct service for trans communities, especially of color, to help get healthcare access, to do social groups and social support, to get mental health care. We feed them meals. We help get folks access to housing. And we've also expanded into doing more civic engagement work, which is what I'm really tasked with at Take to try to reach our communities and the people who love and support us to make sure that we can know what's at stake, access our right to vote, and get out to use our voice in politics and in the civic world. That all sounds amazing. And when I learned about the organization, you know, I just got really excited for this time we were going to have and to really help spread the message about what you're all are doing. One thing that I thought was interesting in the story of the organization is how it started as like a support group and for trans women of color and then expanded into other like into advocacy um, around the issues you were talking about. Can you share a little bit about like how that transition happened and how folks were like, hey, we need to start doing these other things too? Yeah, it's it's a really beautiful evolution that takes gone through. My amazing boss, Darnisha Duncan Boyd, is a black trans woman who born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama, and she was recognizing as she was transitioning how many barriers she was facing and how much of a struggle it was for her. And so she started in a fairly informal way at first, meeting with other Black trans women in Birmingham and just having dinner and having a social support group to meet and to talk about what they were going through and to provide some kind of community support and really uh, lift each other up going through all these hard issues. And then she found out, oh, we're all talking about how we're struggling to find housing Many of us have had experiences with having to do survival sex work. Many of us have been flat out refused service and job opportunities because of who we are. And so it really lit a fire in her to say, we need to do something to provide for our community beyond just meeting with the support group. And so she started uh, actually offering more services and slowly but surely got the kind of nonprofit infrastructure built up that she needed and was able to start bringing in grant money. And now it's built up to an organization that has, I think right now, around 15 staff. We've got a number of programs. We are actually renovating a new building to provide short-term transitional housing for Black trans folks in Birmingham who are re-entering society after being incarcerated or after being um, homeless. And so the the just amazing way that it's grown and now people all over the country have started to notice, you know, Darnisha's amazing work and to support take. So yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a beautiful story. Yeah, it's really powerful and a great story about an issue that someone's personally experiencing and then connecting with others and also, and then putting services into place and like building that uh, strength in numbers, you know, to do the advocacy. Some things that I think just for the listeners, you know, that could be helpful for maybe folks who like don't know much um, 
or maybe just know a little bit, because especially in the current political climate, most of us have heard something about trans folks, but usually often um, in the media right now in a very negative way or from the right in a very negative way. But before we get even into the current political climate, which I know also isn't necessarily new, um, what are, like, as you mentioned, you know, like, what are some of the issues around like healthcare access for trans folks um, that, you know, people experience? Healthcare access is one of the biggest barriers for transgender people. And I think for just poor people in this country, frankly, beyond trans people, but there are unique barriers to accessing healthcare because everything is so interconnected. And so trans folks are dealing with so much employment discrimination. And a lot of people in this country get healthcare through their jobs. So a lot of trans folks just never are able to access the type of employment that allows them to have healthcare. A lot of trans folks are dealing with legal issues around updating our name and our gender markers. And so sometimes accessing government services that continuously misgender us or get confused by things like name changes can make it hard to access Medicaid, can make it hard to access other services. Um, a lot of healthcare providers and insurance companies don't cover transition-related care, uh, things like hormone replacement therapy or hormone blockers. And that can be prohibitively expensive. Almost nowhere in the country does insurance cover, you know, any kind of transition related surgeries or gender affirming care on that level. And oftentimes there's so many layers of gatekeeping where trans folks will need to go through a primary care doctor a psychiatrist, multiple people that they may not have the money to pay for those visits in order to, you know, get approval for any of these other affirming services. But frankly, a lot of our, our black trans folks are homeless and, and dealing with high HIV rates from survival sex work and are unable to even access basic healthcare that they need for any kind of, uh, you know, cold or flu or anything that's happening, COVID-19. Um, so there's such a, there's such a patchwork full of holes to provide services to trans folks that actually meet our healthcare needs. And now we're in a time when we have legislators that are explicitly trying to ban certain types of our healthcare, um, which is making it even harder to access. Yeah, you know, a lot of what you're talking about, right, are like deeply ingrained systemic barriers around racism, classism, heterosexism, transphobia. And then when trans folks can even get in front of these healthcare providers after, you know, overcoming or despite everything you're talking about, they still have to face the prejudices and biases that the providers have, right? Yeah. There's not a lot of 
quality training of healthcare providers to understand how to be affirming and how to work with the trans community. There are the biases that individual healthcare providers and professionals bring to it themselves. And there have even been studies that a lot of trans people put off accessing healthcare, even if they're able to access it for months because of not wanting to be traumatized by going through being misgendered, being called the wrong name, having to go through all of the the prejudices that we can face in the health offices. And that actually has sometimes caused people to unfortunately, you know, pass away of, of preventable illness because we're not getting into seeing those providers enough. You know, and I'm in Florida, I'm in Miami and recently the department of health. Um, so I'm a clinical social worker, right? So I'm, I get those emails from the department of health. Like I'm, I'm on like the list, right? Like so many other, uh, helping professionals. And they sent out this statement recently. Um, and you know, and I'm bringing this up because I know that a lot of like social work students are going to listen to this episode. So they brought up wanting to clarify, this is in their words, these guidelines released by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So they're citing studies that are really old and that are, um, you know, under scrutiny and that, you know, have been, other experts have said don't hold up, but they're talking about, these are their guidelines that got sent to basically every healthcare provider in the state of Florida that anyone under 18 should not be prescribed puberty blockers or hormone therapy. That was one of them. And, um, you know, they have, they have a number of other guidelines. Like I won't get into all of it, but can you, you know, speak to the problem with this and how this is connected to the current political climate and what's happening in like Florida, Texas, and other states that are really attacking trans youth in particular? Basically, and you mentioned this, there are all these systems that were built for people who aren't trans. There's all these systems that are built to actually exclude trans people and identities and needs and experiences. And so all these structures of society are already not designed for people like us. And if you add on being black and trans, if you add on being an immigrant, any of these other intersections, it just gets 10 times harder. So in that environment, trans people and those who love us have fought for decades to start to carve out some lanes in these systems, like with healthcare, working with health experts and doctors to develop really worldwide accepted standards of care that have decades of research behind them that are shown to dramatically increase the well-being of trans people. And now you have a political backlash from folks that are not acting on the science, who are not acting on those decades of well-established health outcomes, and are instead just saying, we culturally 
don't want trans people around. That threatens our non-scientific sense of what gender is and what we want our society to look like, which is kind of this nostalgic wanting to bring us back to the 50s, in my mind, is kind of this movement that we're in right now, this reactionary movement. And so we have hate groups, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, groups that are actually labeled as hate groups that are funneling money into states like Alabama, like Texas, like Idaho, so many other states. Over 38 states have introduced anti-trans youth legislation in the last two years. We have legislators who are hoping to distract from their failure to address rising costs, COVID-19, many other issues. They're trying to point over at trans kids and say, this is actually the issue that's making our society unsafe. And it's, uh, we think it's a cynical ploy. I think it's a cynical ploy for votes and everything else. But the sad thing is there are real young people that are in the crosshairs and Trans youth, it takes a tremendous amount of courage and self-awareness to come out as trans or queer at a young age and to say to the world, this is who I am. You know, I first came out to my family when I was 13 and this was a few years ago now. And so it was not then a safe environment for me in school. It is now still, I was just talking to a youth group yesterday, an LGBT youth group yesterday in a middle school, and it's still not safe for them. So many of them were bringing up that bullying is a huge problem. But we've started to, as a movement, build out this ability that wasn't there even just a decade ago to have resources for parents and guardians who are grappling with their child coming out and to help get these trans kids mental health resources and sometimes transition resources. And this has been shown time and again in studies to make the likelihood of that child growing up to be healthy and happy and not self-harm and not commit suicide. This makes their lives so much healthier And it's currently being outlawed for political reasons. And so it's, it's a really frightening time. And I think that we, we have to grapple with this attack as like a real attack on just trans young people's ability to live in society. Absolutely. Like the, the way it's worded, like the Florida Department of Health communication, right? They act in their wording, like it's, this is for the benefit of these youth, but we know those of us who pay attention to this and, you know, or live this know that, like you said, this is going to increase potential rates of suicide among trans youth, which are already disproportionately high. And, you know, my, I have a teenage daughter and we were talking about this because she cares a lot about all social justice issues. And, and I've found that like her and her friends and even our younger daughter, like, are much more accepting than like for them. It's like, okay, like pronouns, they, that like, they're like, okay, cool. You know, like, and she was asking me, she was like confused. You know, she's like, I thought that, you know, like, um, 
hormone blockers around like puberty. If you're under 18, it, it can later be reversible if someone wants to, and they could still then have like, you know, go through puberty or have those hormones later. Why are they saying this can't happen, you know, now? Yes, there's there's a lot of misinformation that's being spread to justify these draconian bans. And these bans aren't just you can't provide this care. You know, these bans are we're going to actually threaten healthcare providers and guardians, parents with felonies and potentially jail time for providing this care. So any kind of, oh, it's for the good of the kids. You're actually trying to throw the kids' parents in jail. So I think we can put that argument to rest. But the misinformation is making it sound like these kids are just walking into a healthcare office and saying like, surgery, please. And what's really happening is that over the course of several years, trans kids, kids who are expressing their gender identity are going through layers of mental health care, counseling. And after a long process, some of them will choose to take hormone blockers, which are completely reversible, like you mentioned, and already in use for some cisgender, some non-trans kids for precocious puberty. If, if some, you know, especially young girls are getting puberty at six, at seven, it's, it's coming earlier than, uh, would be beneficial for the child. These blockers are already in use uh, for other purposes. So these blockers are safe if that child continues to go through therapy and decides, you know, actually, I would like to continue with just my normally scheduled programming puberty, then they can go off hormone blockers. Or when they reach an appropriate age of consent, then they can start hormone replacement therapy uh, then when they're adults, when they're 18 plus, they can start to look into accessing surgical intervention, gender affirming care in that way. So there, there isn't anything happening to kids. Kids are able to take steps with their guardian support that are well-established and reversible. Yeah. And one of the laws that's been passed and I'm blanking on the state and hopefully you'll know but isn't it that um in in schools if a teacher like knows the student is trans or the student you know tells the teacher the teacher is now obligated to inform the parents um or maybe like the healthcare provider has to tell the parents or something it's it was something it's something like that that I know has recently happened they they're trying to make that the case in Florida actually um and there's been some language in a few other states where they're trying to make this into like a, a parental rights issue, ironically, as they're trying to take away parents' right to support their kid and, and threatening parents with felonies. And this is the other thing that I think gets lost in this conversation. It's already not the most common for trans kids to come out and find their family totally supportive and on board. Right. Right. And so that's already a hurdle for so many of these kids. And so the attempt to out these children to families that might not be supportive can open these kids up to 
abuse and unsafe environments, but also when legislators and hate groups who are trying to scale back trans care for youth are making this argument, again, they're making it sound like there's an epidemic of trans kids being affirmed. And that's not the case. We're still fighting really hard for every trans kid to have support because many of them, I would say probably at least half are still not feeling safe to come out to their guardians, not being affirmed if they do come out to their guardians and having to try to find support through other means, like through school activities, through GSAs, through community centers. What do you and other folks who are part of this community, like, what are, what's the thoughts around, like, why is this happening more now? I mean, I don't, first of all, correct me if I'm wrong, that it's more now than maybe in the past, because I could, you know, I could be wrong about that. But it does seem like, as you were talking about, like, these reactionary movements, right? So there's obviously been a reactionary white um, movement of white supremacy. And I don't just mean like KKK. And um, I mean, you know, Trump and just white supremacy that infiltrates so much, um, which we see historically anytime there's been black progress. And it's, you know, it's directly connected to the fact that we had a black president. Um, And then there's this anti-trans reactionary movement that's like happening at the exact, like they're going together, right? Like the critical race theory bans and these anti-trans like sports bans and then the healthcare and outing trans youth, which I think is, I would call an act of violence. Um, like why is all this happening at the same time? That is, that is the million dollar question. (laughs) (laughs) I, I really feel like many of our marginalized communities, trans folks, black folks, certainly black trans folks, and there's there's so many ways in which our communities overlap, have been making progress, making strides to being recognized by the broader mainstream, to having more representation in television and music, to gaining some scattershot legal protections where before we hadn't. So I think that it is, it is a pendulum swing moment where a lot of people who benefit from the old ways of doing things that center white cishet men are feeling very threatened, are feeling like this isn't what they wanted to happen. They're maybe losing their grip a little bit on power in our society and are lashing out. I just actually read online that um, in this recent tragic Buffalo shooting, the white supremacist in his, you know, document had mentioned that the LGB community was okay, but that then it got infiltrated by quote unquote groomers and very very noticeably left off the tee and was kind of echoing recent rhetoric that a lot of Republican legislators have been using. Ron DeSantis has been using with this groomer language. And what's interesting is that 
you know, what's old is new again. These attacks are the exact same thing that have been happening to gay and lesbian people for decades. Back in the seventies, there was this, you know, Anita Bryant push to route out any teachers in public schools who were gay or lesbian. And the whole line was trying to conflate gay and lesbian people with pedophiles, making it sound like they were recruiting kids or threatening kids. Um, and they're just resurrecting all these same arguments against the trans community. And I think it's because a lot of these people who have a vested interest in white supremacy, who have a vested interest in patriarchy, are losing their grips on the young people. You just said, which I love about your children, that to them it's kind of like no big thing. And that's true for the younger generations. A lot of them have friends that are trans who've come out who are non-binary. Certainly many more of them are out as queer than ever before. And I don't think that's because young people are are getting more queer. I think it's because they've, <laughs> right. they have the internet, they have the ability to connect and to come out and to understand what they're feeling in a way that a lot of older generations, it took longer for folks to, to identify, oh, this is what it means. This is what I'm feeling. I'm not the only one. A lot of these young people are, are discovering that at a younger age and feeling connected. And I think that's scaring a lot of these very conservative people who, you know, want their children to grow up and, and do the nuclear family thing and be conservative too, and be straight and be cis. Um, but you can't stop, you can't stop people from being who we are. You can just threaten them with jail time if they, if they, um, dare to live their truth or try to make it harder to access healthcare and unfortunately make it more likely that people will self-harm, but they're not going to be able to succeed at keeping people from transitioning or being queer, being trans. And so I'm hoping that this is like a last gasp flail for trying to maintain a way of life that was never sustainable. Yeah. I love how you just said that, you know, they can't stop people from being who who they are. I mean, that's, that's beautiful. That really is. Um, so let's talk about some of the other, let's talk about some of the work you do around civic engagement. What does that kind of look like, you know, for someone from the outside looking in, what would that look like? Our civic engagement work at Take is really focused on addressing the fact that just like there are so many barriers in many other aspects of life, there's so many barriers to trans folks being able to just access our right to vote and get into the ballot box. A lot of our community are in states where there's voter suppression. So in Alabama, there's a voter ID law. If you're a homeless black trans woman, you may not have a valid form of ID. A lot of states try to make it illegal or confusing to access your right to vote if you've had an incarceration history. And many of the survival skills that trans folks have to employ to get by are criminalized. And so many of us have had an experience with, with the legal system. Um, even things like legally changing your name or showing up to a polling place and you don't look the way, quote unquote, that 
you do on your old ID or what have you can make barriers for trans folks. So there's a lot of work that we're doing around ballot access, just making sure our communities know our rights and that we can be advocates in those situations so that our folks can access our right to vote. We also do voter registration. A lot of our communities have been not engaged because they've understandably felt like no one was speaking for them. No one was reaching out and asking for their vote. No one was supporting their issues. So we're having conversations. We're getting folks registered to vote and making sure folks understand what's really at stake in these elections because our rights are on the ballot, especially now with all these anti-trans attacks. And one of the things that I'm so just hype about, about the work that we're doing now is that we have a lot of clients come into our work because they need housing, because they need prep, because they need a hot meal, all of these basic needs. And we're providing those needs. And then we're building a deeper relationship of support and community support with them. And then over time, we're actually giving them the trainings, the resources and the encouragement to go beyond just meeting their basic needs, but to actually become leaders who are voting, who are learning about the issues, who can, who believe in running for office themselves, who believe in taking part in civic life, even outside of formal politics, but starting their own support groups and social groups, starting their own campaigns for change. And so a lot of these clients who are coming to us are coming to us at you know, the bottom of, of the hierarchy of needs, so to speak. And we're helping them in a very intentional way with all these different ways that they can improve their lives and then use their voice to make change so that we can shift all of the systems that actually put them at that negative space to begin with. I love that. Like it's beyond social services, right? And it, and it actually reminds me part of how I got into activism when I was younger, very early on was I, um, through a series of events was fortunate to connect with like some former black Panthers. And so like, I got a lot of my political and social education from them. And that's really how they did programs, right? Like they went out, they had like health clinics, they did sickle cell testing when no one was doing it. They did free breakfast programs, which of course are in schools. Now they did all these programs, right, that they called um, survival programs pending revolution. But then they organized, like they were like a youth movement, like a black youth movement, really, that organized their communities through providing needs, but then building political power. So that's like, that's what that reminds me of when you talk about that. Yeah, that's a huge inspiration, honestly. And Darnish is always, our executive director and founder has always had this, this broad vision. And it is like, how are you going to talk to this black trans woman who's at your door about voting when she's like, I haven't had a meal in three days. You have to meet immediate needs. You have to provide the basics so that people can get back to kind of homeostasis. But then a lot of groups just stop there and there's no analysis of how did we even get here? There's no urgency to try to shift these systems that created that situation in the first place. And so as take has been growing, we've really 
under Darinisha's vision and leadership been trying to figure out how do we, how do we go full circle with this? How do we, how do we heal people's spirits and their, their hope and their belief in what their life can be as well as just provide their immediate needs? And then how can we work together and protest and vote and do everything in our power to actually make it so the next girl coming up, the next trans youth doesn't have to deal with the same thing. Yeah, 100%. I love that. So for you, so for you, you know, I like to ask people, what do you love about this work? Because obviously, we just went over like a lot of the challenges, right? And the political climate, these entrenched, oppressive systems. But like, what do you love about the work you get to do every day with Take? I love this question. There's not enough time for us to like lift up the joy and the possibility in what we do. Um, I really love when, when we have a moment where someone so clearly like has a click, has a, has a breakthrough. We've hosted in the past a training where we brought in a really amazing Latinx, uh, trans woman candidate for public office, Dejalyn Alvarez. And she spoke to a group of our clients about running for office and about her story, which she's public about of how she at one point had been on the stroll, barely surviving, dealing with police, dealing with survival sex work. And we had someone come up to us after and say, wow, I didn't really know someone like me could run for office. Like now I'm, this is just making me think of all kinds of things. And there, I just saw that person's face light up with this sense of possibility. And there's so many moments like that where our communities, when we create these alternative spaces for inspiration and connection, can start to see their life as something that can be bigger and bolder and more beautiful than they they thought was possible for them. And there's also moments like with with the youth group that I that I spoke with yesterday of uh, a middle school GSA, there are moments where there's young people who are so far beyond where I was as a kid. And that gives me so much joy and hope because I remember it was, it was such an uphill battle to start our scrappy, tiny GSA at my high school when I was coming up. And now there's this, this GSA in a middle school of like 20 kids who were friends and who were, who were like hanging out after school and putting on programs. And it's, it's so cool to see like, Oh, we are getting somewhere even with all these attacks. Yeah. The, the youth, like they give me so much hope. (laughs) Um, Although there's also a lot of horrible stories not to try to dampen it, but like, I, I wish it was, that like the younger generation was all like further along or like, cause I hear a lot of stories just from my daughters, especially about like just all the stuff they hear, you know, like, and stuff on social media that is really like homophobic. Um, and that's concerning. And I, and I, and I don't think schools are doing enough to address it. And again, like living in the state, I live in now you can't even talk about it for a certain age, you know, for certain grades, um, without 
getting, you know, again, having legal trouble. So, you know, just the fact that conversation is being banned is really concerning. Yeah. Talk about censorship and free speech and quote unquote cancel culture. Right. This this is where it's happening. They don't want you to talk about ideas and, and history in school. Uh, what about my choice as a parent? Like talking about parental choice, <laughs> like you made that great example earlier. It's like it's parental choice for the issues that they want it to be about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. it is sort of this one step forward, one step back. I feel like there's so much that's breaking through for youth where they have access to information and community and support that I never had even not that long ago. And certainly folks that are older never had, but bullying is still rampant. And now you have some of these adults and legislators who are trying to essentially mandate bullying with their targeting of, of trans youth. And I, I personally dealt with so much bullying growing up as not being gender conforming in school I think when we talk about bullying, it almost makes it sound cute because we give it the name bullying. It sounds like, oh, someone was mean to you on the playground. But what we're talking about is systemic harassment and chronic stress that these young people are going through where every day when they go to school, when I was going to school, this was the case. And some of the young people shared this last night too. Every day you're going into school, which is supposed to be a safe environment where you're focused on learning and maybe you you're figuring yourself out because you're 13 or whatever becomes an environment where you have panic about having to face slurs, having to face people saying cruel things to you, even like locker checking folks or throwing things at you. Like there's, there's physical assaults happening. And we, when we say it in that way, there's chronic harassment and assaults in our schools you perk up more than if you say bullying, which almost trivializes it in my mind. Um, But it is a huge problem. The schools are not doing enough. We really need to address systematically the ways in which these schools don't take these things seriously as incidents of hate crimes, how it has a huge impact on mental health of these young people in the moment but then also for years to come, how it impacts kids that you might not even be understanding yet who aren't out, but who feel like they can't come out because they've seen how people treat them. And then what's really sad to me is that instead of meeting all those challenges, you have states actually making it worse by trying to target trans kids even more to not be able to be in sports, to censor LGBTQ books in school libraries, to make it so that teachers can't even answer questions if a kid says, oh, we're talking about this historical figure, weren't they gay? And maybe they were, and now the teacher's worried I might get fired for just telling the truth about history, and I'm a history teacher. So we're not headed in the right direction in a lot of these states. Yeah, and the sports one... The wording that they use, you know, like calling it like a fairness, like it's never called 
let's discriminate against trans girls act, right? It's like the fairness for girls in sports act. And it's like, it reminds me of like Orwellian, you know, speech of like, we're going to call it this. We're going to call it the opposite of what it is, you know, and, and, and confuse people or uh, whatever they're doing, you know? Yeah, it is. It's, it's definitely Orwellian. It's up is down and down is up. And, you know, what what always strikes me is that in most of these states where there's been this huge multi-million dollar ad campaign and push to ban trans girls from sports, you would think that there's like millions of trans girls infiltrating the sports teams. In most of these states, journalists have looked into it and many of them have had zero trans girls who are trying to compete on varsity women's sports in high school. And some of the states have had like one openly trans girl who's on a volleyball team or something like this isn't this is a solution in search of a problem this isn't actually something that's that's threatening women's sports and i think something that people also misunderstand about the nature of title nine and the whole long legacy of protecting girls and women's sports has not been because women and girls are not as strong as boys so they need their own special section title nine is explicitly that many many public schools were not putting any funding into girls sports they were just saying sports aren't important to girls we don't want them to have the same opportunities because we don't care that's not feminine whatever old-fashioned notions so title nine and the protection of girls sports as a category has never been about saying uh boys run too fast it's been about saying systemically girl sports have not been invested in and we're going to actually make sure legally that schools have to have opportunities athletically for girls and boys and now this it's actually a very anti-feminist argument is being used by a lot of uh these people that are trying to ban trans girls in sports because they're saying like Girls won't get a chance to compete. Girls aren't, they're basically saying girls aren't athletic. And not only is that not scientific, trans girls have no, you know, advantage that's been measurable in sports. Trans people make up, I think they think we're about 3% of the population now. So the idea that there will be an influx of, of trans girls winning every category is, is just not happening. But then also there's this strange way in which all these arguments are reinforcing old-fashioned sexist ideas that girls can't be strong and athletic and rough and tumble because they can. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, it's just it's totally a political maneuver to cater to this increasingly overt because I don't want to say it's new in that way, but it is increasingly overtly racist, um, sexist, and homophobic, you know, base. And really, it connects to white Christian nationalism, which that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> um, but it, but it does, you know, we can't really talk about it without saying that, because that's part of that movement. Yeah, it is. It is very connected. And you see the same types of groups, Proud Boys and what have you, that are so violent 
and threatened by black and brown folks liberation and progress you see those same groups really honing in on trans folks and sometimes queer folks as other targets and it is tied up in in toxic masculinity patriarchy all of these things that are connecting because even with this fight with Roe v Wade there's this sense that there's a retrenchment that women and trans folks broadly and people of color are getting too too much of, of a piece of the pie now and we need to get back to the good old days quote unquote and the thing is we're barely starting to like get enough that, and not nearly enough um and now there's this huge backlash yeah so for folks listening who want to support your work um take and also who want to do work around trans rights you know how can they get involved it's really important because there's so much happening right now it's hard to focus but it's really important to get involved with what's happening at your own state level wherever you are there is a statewide organization who's leading the charge against these anti-trans attacks and standing with them and figuring out how to help them is really important. We at Take would love anyone's support if you want to go to takebhm.org and donate or learn more about our efforts in Pennsylvania and Alabama. But one of the main things that has happened when Texas passed their their anti-trans bill recently when now in Alabama the anti-trans bill was passed people from all over donate and and send us messages and want to know how to help and we love that support thank you please keep supporting us and sometimes the best fight you can fight is the one in your own backyard and in like i said over 38 states they're fighting to try to pass these draconian scary anti-trans laws And so if you can connect a good website to start with is Equality Federation. They have state uh partners in I think almost every state. Uh a quick Google search of just trans-led organizations in your area. Figure out how you can show up and how you can support um and make it a voting issue because I think the other side has made it a voting issue they've really hit hard that this is going to motivate their folks to come to the polls this year and that's probably a big reason why they're targeting trans folks is is to make us into that scapegoat that wedge issue and we need to to not fall into that and to support candidates that are loud and proud about supporting equality and equity yeah and i'll i'll link your I'll put your website in the show notes and I'll also um Equality Federation put that there so people can you know easily access that so something I wanted to ask you as we're talking you know is I mean folks can't see you but um I can see you and you're white and you are working in a predominantly black organization and you know I just wanted to kind of like acknowledge that and 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 bring that up cuz clearly you have to have done some work around your own racism and active anti-racist work to do what you do and i just thought it was something important to ask you about yeah definitely it's it's interesting because a few years ago i had 
met Darnish and we had started to work together in a different capacity. And I saw how she worked on the ground with community members in Alabama. And I just, I said to her, and I really meant it, Darnisha, I would follow you anywhere. I was just so inspired by the way that she shows up and the way that she's the type of person who will jump in her van at midnight to, to go grab someone who is, you know, at the bus station and needs help. And that's always been who she is. And even now as an executive director of this much larger organization, that's still how she is. And, and she took me up on it. She really said, you know, we are trying to build out this civic engagement program. I know that you have been in this role in other organizations and I need your help to, to get, make my vision a reality. And over several years, I've been learning and really connecting to the idea that a rising tide lifts all boats, that I see a lot of white-led, often cis-led organizations doing work in the LGBTQ community that are talking about issues that don't relate to a lot of Black trans folks' daily lives. You know, a lot of these non-discrimination protections are great, but a lot of these folks have never been able to even get their GED to be eligible for those jobs in the first place because of all the barriers against them. And so it's been... It's been a lot of learning from Darinisha. It's been a lot of being willing to be led and just expressing, like, tell me how I can be helpful. And it's been a lot of unlearning and connecting myself to the ways that a lot of the advocacy, even that I'd done in the past, was making a lot of assumptions about what resources or what experiences trans people had and getting back to basics of seeing how racism and anti-immigrant sentiment and the criminal quote-unquote justice system and all of these things actually impact trans people especially of color and just wanting to make sure you know we're not really going to have trans justice until all of our community is uplifted yeah i'm so glad i asked you about it (laughs) and i just think so i thought it was something important to like bring up and I think your critique of, you know, white led social justice for, you know, movements that don't have an anti racist analysis um, is such an important message to put out there. Yeah. And I'm always learning too. You know, I think, I think the humility aspect of things is maybe more important than anything else. Just knowing that you don't understand and that you don't have the same experiences and trying not to take up too much space, but trying to show up to the work and say, let me know how I can be helpful. Yeah, that's, that's great. I think it'd be great if more folks could do that. Yeah. Well, that's another way I think a lot of these young people are are inspiring me. I think I'm often surprised by their intersectional analysis, even in high school, where they're talking about some of these identities and these issues in ways that I definitely couldn't have when I was, you know, 14 or what have you. Totally. I mean, some of these young folks could be like teaching college professors how to talk (laughs) about this stuff because 
they totally get it and a lot of the professors don't. Yes, and that really makes me hopeful. You know, before we wrap up, is there anything else, you know, you wanted to get out there while while you've got the while you've got the mic? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's really hard for a lot of people to understand trans folks and because they can't understand us, they struggle to empathize with us. And hate groups and legislators and misinformation has taken big advantage of that because in the vacuum of folks not understanding who we are, they can tell lies and make up scary stories about who we are. And I think for each of us and everyone listening, one of the biggest things you can do is try to understand that we're human and connect with us empathetically on that level. We're human and we have civil rights. We're human and we have human rights. You don't have to become an expert in gender affirming care to know that you support our basic rights to our own bodies, our basic rights to exist safely in the world. If we just bring it back to that really human level, I'm hopeful that more people can understand that even if they don't understand all of the specifics, they share the values of bodily autonomy, of equality, of human rights. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 100%. And I, I really appreciate, you know, your vulnerability and sharing some of your own, like, personal experiences, you know, at 13 and in school and, um, the, what you just said about people, you know, who aren't trans, not cisgender folks, not understanding trans folks and bringing it to that human level. And just all the knowledge you've communicated, you know, in our time together today. And I know that people are going to learn from what you've shared. And I really hope, you know, it gets them to take action, you know, on multiple levels, interpersonally and systemically. And I, so I want to thank you for your time. And I want to thank you and Darnisha, um, share that message with her for doing the work. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really hope people get something useful out of this and just can, like you said, take action. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place.